Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open to Mark chapter 3. Uh, that's page 838 on your uh, Blue Pew Bible if you want to follow along there. So I want you to think of something in your life, um, something in your life that has required perseverance, currently maybe requiring perseverance, right? The definition of perseverance is a determination in doing something despite the presence of difficulty or delay, right? Perseverance is something that no matter what you believe walking in this morning, we can all kind of agree that uh, this is something that's vital and oftentimes even required in our lives. And there's this sense of accomplishment that can be attached to perseverance, right? Of overcoming all odds, of pushing through to greater future joy in the presence of a present trial. Um, so there's a member of uh, the Grace group that uh, I lead uh, that is down in Disney World this weekend, and she's running a half marathon. And, um, you know, just, I asked her, um, I said, because we, we, I'm not a long-distance runner, right? Love exercise, not long-distance running. I probably never will be. So I always just had this, like, you know, burning question. I hear both sides. I'm like, all right, in our Grace group this past week, I was like, let's settle this right now, all right? Is the runner's high a thing? You know, the runner's high, that, or is, is that like an actual thing where you kind of break through this greater just moment of adrenaline long into a distance run, or is that just something that runners like to hold over our heads as non-runners and think we're missing out on something? Like, is the runner's high a thing? And, and she was like, hey, hey, I'm just one person. I think it's real, right? Like, it's this, it's this unbelievable time of breakthrough, and it requires perseverance through difficulty and pain that then leads to the sense of almost power and adrenaline. And she's like, man, it just feels awesome. Like, you can run through a wall. And so I'm, I got to the other side. I'm like, ah, I'm still not convinced. But I do get the idea, <laughs> I do get the idea of perseverance, Right, of pushing through difficulty because on the other side, there's greater joy to be had. I mean, that video that we just watched from Sue, I mean, she just basically just described what it is to persevere in the Christian life. Right, through difficulty, through trial that we're all going to face, and, and what happens when we have a year like Sue had. And there's this idea of needing to persevere to greater joy in the midst of a present trial. So perseverance, it's, it's positive all around. It's required oftentimes, but I, I would like to just say this, that there's one form of perseverance that has eternal implications. One form of perseverance that is required, and that is perseverance in the Christian life. Like, do you want to know how to persevere? Do you want assurance that you can and will, by the grace and power of God, to make it to the end? And I am a firm believer that God is the great shepherd who does not let any of his sheep get snatched from his hand. But how does he accomplish that? How does he empower and equip us to persevere? We have a lot of work to do this morning in the book of Mark. We're, we're going to survey four passages uh, through the remainder of Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And these are passages that often get overlooked, right? There's a lot of kind of well-known, popular passages in Mark, but these are generally not them. They're the ones that kind of just get skimmed over and get to the next big story. But in them, we will see four aspects of Christ-centered perseverance, and they're vital so let me encourage us all to lean in this morning and hear from the word of the Lord. We're going to start in Mark chapter 3, verse 7. And to start, we'll go verses 7 through 12. 
Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Four aspects of Christ-centered perseverance. First, Christ-centered perseverance occurs under pressure. It occurs under pressure. So um, if you remember where we left off last week, the Pharisees kind of had their final straw moment uh, with Jesus. And now they're scheming on how to destroy him. And while they're doing this, Jesus takes his disciples and they withdraw to the Sea of Galilee. Presumably for restoration, right? Jesus is always looking to have time alone with his disciples to just rest, to get away from the crowds. So he takes them and they withdraw. But we see very quickly, that's not going to happen. Because his fame is at an all-time high. He can't get away from the crowds. People were crazy about him. And did you notice in this passage, no longer is this just a crowd from the little city of Capernaum. Word has gotten out. Jesus is not just the talk of the town. He's the talk of the entire region. And they're coming from Galilee and Judea, from Jerusalem and Idumea, from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. And so I think it's just helpful for us to see like, what, what, how wide-ranging are these places. So we're going to throw a map up onto the screen to talk about this because um, this isn't, like, it's not like saying they came to Ridgewood from Midland Park and from Hohokus and from Fairlawn and Glenrock. Right? People are not just going a town over. These regions, as you can see, both uh, to the south, to the southeast, to the north, span over 100 miles in multiple directions. Words got out. It's like, it, again, just for our kind of sake, it'd be like people are coming to Ridgewood, but they're coming from Atlantic City, and they're coming from Philly, and they're coming from Stanford, and they're coming from Poughkeepsie. And it's a diverse crowd, Right, that's important. The, the, the regions of Judea and Jerusalem uh, consist of almost all Jews. But the regions of Galilee and Idumea were mixed in with Gentiles. The land of Tyre and Sidon to the north had majority Gentile, Gentile meaning non-Jewish population. And then the east of the Jordan was the Decapolis, a group of ten cities that were nearly all Gentile. Meaning, this wasn't just one group of people that were fascinated by Jesus. He attracted people from all walks of life. This, this is an early glimpse at the fact that there is one God and here is one man and he is compelling to multiple people groups. An early glimpse that Jesus, rightly understood, rightly taught, is not just attractive to a single race. No race can claim him. It's not just to one kind of culture that's attractive to him. It's men and women of every race and of every culture. We'll come back to that. But people are leaving their lives behind to just come see this Jesus for themselves. And they're not taking mass transit, right? Like these aren't half-day trips via Amtrak or the Greyhound. They are walking. They are riding. They are committing several days of travel just to see him. And so from our perspective, we might read that and go, man, this is great. Jesus' word is getting out. He's drawing such a crowd. But Mark is not painting it in that way. He's saying, this is pure mayhem. 
It is so chaotic that Jesus tells his disciples to get a getaway boat ready. Prepare me a boat. I might need to escape by sea, lest they crush me. The scene was wild. And in addition to just general interest of wanting to hear him, the sick wanted to get to him because word's gotten out that he heals. All the evil spirits are falling down before him, and Jesus is under pressure in every way. Pressure from those trying to get something from him. There's, there's this kind of good pressure, right? People want his healing power to restore their sick and ill. There's bad pressure in that there's, there are these spirits that are just angry with him, and so you see they're trying to out him. N not trying to confess his name in a good way. They're just trying to out his identity so it would derail his ministry. Pressure in every way. And here's the point. While Jesus was pressured, he wasn't surprised. He knew full well this would be the response of his ministry. And there's something important for us to notice here before we move on. That on one end we have a Savior who handled the pressure, right? He handled the pressure in such a way where he never wavered from his primary purpose to go to the cross. But I think he's also showing his followers that living out a Christ-centered life is going to come with it a certain kind of pressure. If you think about it, what does it mean to live out a Christ-centered life? Someone would just ask you that. I think there's a lot of answers we could put forth, but from what we've even just seen so far in the Gospel of Mark, it includes deploying the power of Christ within us by being givers. Right? We talked about that last week by, by just pouring ourselves out for the good of others because we have a Savior who poured himself out for us. And when you live a life that's marked out by deploying yourself for the good of others, our time, our talents, our treasure, just giving, 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 that will inevitably put pressure on us, won't it? Why? Be because if we're honest, <laughs> it's just flat out easier to just care about yourself. It's just flat out easier to just care about yourself and not have to care about others than blessing others. It's easier to not spend any time serving others, but spend all the time and keep it for yourself. It's easy for us to give zero treasures away, but to keep and hoard for ourselves. It's easier to not bless others with our gifts and talents, but use it just to promote ourselves. Listen, it's flat out easier to be selfish. And we can avoid a lot of this kind of pressure by just taking the easier path and just worrying about ourselves. But easier is rarely ever better. It's certainly not better in this case. Because to follow Christ is to willingly place yourself in the pressure cooker. That the Christian life is best when we use it to glorify God and put others ahead of ourselves. And in, in this way, a certain kind of pressure is to be expected. And, and so we need to understand, pressure doesn't mean we're miserable, right? It doesn't mean we need to be miserable. In fact, I think the more pressure we face in this way, the more joy we receive in continually being deployed and restored by the Holy Spirit. Pressure is not negative. It's often associated with a fruitful ministry, right, as it is here with Jesus. So, so I'll, I'll just say this. If, if living out our faith is just easy all the time, if living out our faith comes with no pressure and no fatigue, 
we should reevaluate if we're faithfully living out the actual Christian life God's called us to live. Doesn't mean we never rest. We just read and heard about the importance of the Sabbath last week, but it means that God has wired us to go to bed tired. You know what I mean? Like to live a life that requires rest because we're working so hard to live out a life that pours itself out for his glory and for the good of others. Christ-centered perseverance occurs under pressure. All right, let's keep going. Verses 13 to 21. A lot of work to do. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bone and Jairus, and that is sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot. Who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. Second, Christ centered perseverance occurs in community. It occurs in community. Jesus goes up the mountain alone. Um, Luke chapter 6 gives us a parallel story of this actual scene. And in Luke 6, we're told that he actually prayed all night on the mountain before calling his 12 disciples in the morning. This was a vital time in his ministry, right? Big things happen on mountains in the Bible. Right, if you're reading the Bible and somebody's on a mountain, like read closely, something's about to go down. All right? So Jesus summons from the crowd a group of men that Mark refers to as the Twelve. And this is one of those list passages where we just often can kind of scan over it. You come on it in your Bible reading plan, you're like, nice, a list. This is going to be a quick one today, right? You can just kind of read it over because you're like, oh, we're just getting names. There's nothing really here, but there is so much here. I won't even be able to touch it all this morning. But a point of clarification is needed. It might seem like semantics, but I think this is important, that in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word disciple, it gets used a couple different ways, and sometimes it's used to describe these actual 12, but a disciple refers to anybody who's a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. So disciples were men and women that were present and part of Jesus' ministry. By the time of his resurrection and his ascension, we're told 120 remained. Right, so all of these crowds, it was only down to 120 by the time that he ascended up to the Father after resurrecting from the dead. But it's this special calling where 12 of his disciples also became, as Mark just told us, apostles. So all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles, right? Jesus chose 12 and, and that was a very key number because when Judas betrayed Jesus and then he committed suicide, you remember the 11 said, we need to appoint another. We need a 12th because that 12 matched up with the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. 
But these apostles are men whom Jesus called for a unique, unrepeatable role in the history of redemption, where they would carry the torch forward after Christ's earthly ministry, and they would be the leaders in charge of beginning this new new movement that would be called the church. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus spent three years doing ministry before he went to the cross. This is one of the reasons why he told the demons, quiet down, don't get the word out. Because he had needed three years to disciple and pour into these men. Because while his primary reason of coming into the world, we're told, was to lay down his life for sinners, he was also sent to disciple men and women who would be the means through which the gospel persevered through space and time. So how would they do that? How would this gospel of Jesus Christ persevere long after Christ was gone? We see right from the start... That perseverance was built upon community and the means of community, of disciples that were equipped to make disciples and in doing so formed churches that planted churches. Jesus pours into these men so they would in turn pour into others and on and on has it gone across history. The perseverance of the faith, the perseverance of the church relies on discipleship. Discipleship in Christ-centered communities, right? Discipleship, that's a word we hear often, of, of making disciples. And it occurs in Ridgewood today in the 21st century because of what Jesus modeled in Capernaum in the first century. And this always has been and it always will be the purpose of the church. Why does the church exist? To make disciples. Period. Stop. So make disciples is a phrase we say on repeat. Everything we do here should pour into the mission of making disciples. But you might have a question, or somebody else might have a question. Okay, what's a disciple? If this is what we're supposed to be making, what exactly is a disciple? Most simply put, a disciple is a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. But I think more needs to be said. If this really is what we should be doing as a Christian and as a church, if this is our purpose, we can't afford to be vague here. We can't afford to be light or just skim the surface. And this passage of just listing these men give us a compelling depth to the answer of that question. What is a disciple? I've adopted a five-part definition of a disciple that pastor author Kevin DeYoung formulated based on these verses, Mark 3, 7 through 21. So let me just encourage you, even if you're not a note taker, this might be worthwhile to write these five down because these get to the very core of what it is what we should be doing. What's it, what is it to make a disciple and play a part in making disciples? Number one, a disciple is more than a fan. We just read about how crowds followed Jesus everywhere he went. Thousands, ten thousands, if not more. They were mesmerized by him, but the majority of them were fans. Not committed followers and not disciples. A fan is someone who knows a whole lot about someone without personally knowing them. A fan is someone who merely just wants to get something from someone. All right, So I am a huge fan of the New York Jets. 
Pray for me, all right? I know, life of misery. But if any, listen, if anyone were to, on the Jets were to see me in public, they wouldn't be able to know me from the next guy. Nothing in their eyes would flicker like, I know this guy, nothing. Because I have no personal relationship with anybody on the Jets. I'm just a fan. And likewise, many people are just fans of Jesus. They love his power. That they love his gifts, or at least what people are sharing about what he can do. They, they love the fact that we could get some of that. They're impressed by his teaching, even. But it doesn't go any further. Fans of Jesus are not convicted of sin. Fans of Jesus don't look for a savior in their lives. They just like him. No semblance of a relationship. So a disciple is more than a fan. Number two. A disciple is more than a confession. Verse 11, we read how the demons came upon Jesus. The demons and confessed, you are the son of God. Listen, the demons nailed it. So far in the gospel of Mark, two times has somebody rightly identified Jesus. Both demons. None of his followers, none of his disciples, they're the only ones who get it. They're the only ones who at this point in Mark are going to pass a theology exam. They acknowledge who Jesus is. They confess it. But this is why it's important that it's more than a confession. Listen, the demons hate him. They have no allegiance for him. No love for him. No sense of transformation or affection in their hearts that shapes the way they think and the way they act. And likewise, often today we hear people who can offer a confession of who Jesus is and yet are not disciples. In a country, a country especially like the United States, especially around the times of Christmas and Easter, you hear a lot of confessions. Jesus is the Son of God. He's, he's Savior of the world. Jesus rose again. He died on a cross. People who will confess these things about the Lord, which are right, and yet have no affection for the Lord. No evidence of transformation in their lives. No submission to Jesus in their lives. And this one is so vital that we need to even understand and consider this is possible for many of us. Where you say Jesus is the Savior, but he's not your Savior. Where Jesus is Lord, but he's not your Lord. Where you might say Jesus brings freedom for sinners, but not your sin. A disciple is not less than a confession, but it is certainly more. That's number two. Number three. A disciple is called by Jesus. Verse 13, and he went up the mountain and called him to those whom he desired, and they came to him. And this is the pattern we see all throughout scripture, but certainly all throughout the gospels. Jesus calls and people come. Jesus calls and people respond. Jesus calls and people follow over and over and over again. Everywhere in the Bible God is the initiator of making disciples. He does the work. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He stands at the door and knocks. Jesus calls men and women to follow him. 
And so based on this, I have the conviction that to whomever God grants the grace to see his son for who he really is, for any heart that sees Jesus as the Christ, can't help but follow him. For a heart that sees it, how could you choose otherwise? Grace and freedom and salvation, fully justified by his work of dying on the cross for your sin, a disciple is called by Jesus. Number four, a disciple is anyone, regardless of background, who believes in and worships Jesus Christ. Anyone, regardless of background, who believes in and worships Jesus Christ. Um, I wish I could spend some more time here, but just suffice it to say, these 12, they are a motley crew. All right? Let me just give you one of dozens of examples. You have a former tax collector in Matthew. Remember his name was Levi. We met him a couple chapters ago. And he partnered with Rome. Like tied to the hip with Rome. And then you had Simon the Zealot. The group of zealots were people who were part of a a small group of Jews who sought to spark a violent revolution against Rome. Like how do you think that first team meeting went? Simon the Zealot standing next to Matthew, like maybe a little friction, right? A little awkward. Uh, uh, And in the midst of their diversity, it worked. Why? Because they had one common trait, and it's all they needed to make it work. The trait of believing in Jesus Christ and committing to follow him. Of repenting of their sin. Of believing in and worshiping Jesus as the Messiah and committing their lives to follow him. A disciple is anyone, regardless of background, who believes in and worships Jesus Christ. And fifth and finally, a disciple is someone who has a purpose to make disciples. Verse 14, and he appointed the twelve so they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Jesus does not disciple these men just to build them up, just to make them really strong. He does it for the purpose of equipping them to go and turn and then make disciples. And equip others to make disciples who make disciples. And on has gone for over 2,000 years. And while the apostles, which we talked about, were set apart in a unique way with unique gifts and abilities, it is clear in the Great Commission, it's clear all throughout the New Testament that every disciple of Christ can and is called to play a part in making disciples. It's not just the job of the pastors. It's not just the job of the elders or the ministry leaders. The whole point of ministry is to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. For you can go places I can't go. And you are going to interact with people that I will never interact with. And it's far better for me and for everybody who's a leader at Grace Church to see their role, not as the ones just doing ministry to those receiving ministry, but to equip disciples to make disciples. The perseverance of God's kingdom in a world of darkness depends on this. And if we were to think about this, if we were to go around and everybody in this room who has come to faith and told their story, in every person's story, there's going to be talk about another disciple that God has used in their life. God's work flows through the work of faithfulness 
within disciples to make disciples. So now we are all called to step into that space, to, to become, as Paul calls it, agents of reconciliation, where we are used by God to see others come to faith and grow in faith as well. So five-part definition, what is a disciple? You see what I mean? This list of the 12, not something just to blow by. It carries the very definition of what we're supposed to be doing. And it's vital to nail this down because, again, the mission of every Christ-centered church, including Grace Church, is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And that is best done, most effectively done in community. No disciple is a lone ranger. It's nonsensical at best, maybe hypocritical at worst, to say, I'm a Christian, but I don't belong to a church. All right, we got to start flying. Let's go. Verses 22 to 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Elzebul. Still don't know how to say that. And by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. We've seen Christ-centered perseverance, how it occurs under pressure, how it occurs in community, and now third, against opposition. We're introduced to a new group of people in verse 22, the, the scribes of Jerusalem, all right? The big guns have been called in. Right, these are the scribes of the Jewish capital of the world where the temple is. And previously we saw Jesus had all these run-ins run with the scribes of Capernaum. But now all this tension has been kicked up a notch. And so the FBI has taken over the investigation. You know what I mean? No longer in the local police's hands. The FBI is here. And there's no more messing around. And they come to where Jesus is and they hand down an immediate verdict. They need little to no time to deliberate. They have the answer. You see, Jesus is demon-possessed. They obviously can't deny the spiritual power he's showing, so they try and go the route of saying and convincing people he's Satan's puppet. He's carrying out the work of the evil one. It's pretty crazy. But apparently it's carrying some weight amongst the people because, after all, this is the FBI. This is the scribes of Jerusalem. They're smarter than the rest. But Jesus, as he did with the scribes of Capernaum last week, he wastes no time in just tearing into their horrible logic. He goes into their complex theory with a simple question. Why would Satan act against himself? What, what point would there be to tear his own people down? You see, a house divided cannot stand. Um, paraphrase, are you serious? Like, you come all the way up here, you've had all this time to think about it, and that's what you come up with. And yet, this is the hard-heartedness of opposition to Jesus Christ. 
And every generation and every culture and every church will have its own variations of oppositions. And the church in every era will face those who refuse to acknowledge the gospel and try to keep others from doing so as well. And Jesus, just baffled by the pride of the scribes that will do anything to convince themselves that Jesus is not the answer. And he goes on to say that while the Father is gracious to forgive all sin, all sin that mankind commits, there is a sin that is guilty of being an eternal sin. This is often referred to as the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin, and it has been of intense discussion for 2,000 years. All right, It has forever freaked people out as to whether or not they've committed that sin and now no longer stand a chance, a chance of receiving forgiveness. But if you read this in context and just flow of the passage, I think it's simpler than I think we can often make it out to be. That the eternal sin, the sin for which there's no forgiveness, is the deliberate and ongoing rejection of the saving power and grace of God through Jesus Christ. There is no salvation outside of Christ. So refusing and attributing his work to something other than grace and love and repeatedly rejecting his call is unforgivable and it's eternal. Meaning this, if you're still alive to worry if you've committed the unforgivable sin, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. Because Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And it's never too late while you're here to run to Jesus. Where you will find arms wide open. Let us not delay, let us not approach the point of no return. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life. And that is available to all who would answer the call to repent of sin, seek forgiveness by putting your faith in him. All right, last one. Verses 31 to 35. And his mother and his brothers came And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The final exclamation point of Christ-centered perseverance that we would all do well to hear is that Christ-centered perseverance occurs by faith. This is the first time we're introduced to Jesus' family in the Gospel of Mark, and it's not exactly a positive introduction. Remember, there's no Christmas story in Mark. We just started out of the gates running, right? So we didn't hear about Mary and Joseph. And here's the first introduction. And if you notice, I skipped talking about verse 20. When Jesus chose the 12 and then he went home to find his family trying to seize him. And they were saying, you're out of your mind. They're they're worried about him. In in fact, I kind of understand where they're coming from, right? This is their Jesus. This is their brother and their son. and, And he's becoming a danger to himself. They see the crowds. They see the fierceness that's against him as well as, was for, as well as those who are for him. And they're just thinking, man, this doesn't end well. 
It's only a matter of time that something happens, so they try and seize him. And now in verse 31, Mark comes back to them in the story because Jesus is at home, presumably the home base at Simon Peter's house in Capernaum, and his family shows up from Nazareth, which, by the way, is not down the road, but his family comes. And they're outside the home, and Jesus is teaching inside, and of course there's a crowd all around him, and then word gets to Jesus, hey, um, your family's here. They're outside, and they want to talk to you. They want to take you back. They want to bring you back to reality. Jesus, your family's here. Again, I think it's a reasonable request by them. I think it's kind of normal, a family that cares for him. And then Jesus uses this as an opportunity to make a teaching point with a very abnormal response. He looks around. And says, who's my mother and brothers? Here they are. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. He's not disrespecting his family here. We will see in the rest of the gospel and throughout the New Testament, he was very much still in tune with his family. And his family played a role in the early church. But he uses this as a perfect opportunity to talk about who gets to be part of the family of God. God's family, a spiritual family, which will prove to be far more important because it's eternal. And so he's in this mixed crowd, and, and the crowds in Mark always can really convict, uh, made up of three different kinds of people, right? You had your disciples, your committed followers. You had just the fans. They just wanted to see, like, see something awesome happen. And then you had opposition. So this is what the crowd's always made up with, and he, he looks around And he points to his disciples, to the men and women who are in the room who were following him, and he says, here's my family. For whoever does the will of God is my family. Whoever does the will of God by faith are the ones who will persevere to the end. Scripture is clear that salvation is had by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and then obedience or doing God's will is the outward evidence or the result of saving faith. And Jesus provides a glimpse into what it looks like to be in the family of God. He says it's not genetic. It's not based on how you look. It's not based on the color of your skin. It's not based on where you came from. It's based upon whether you have been transformed through faith. For which obedience flows. Tim Keller, pastor in Manhattan, um, retired pastor now, commenting on this verse, applies this to our lives by saying this. It'll be on the screen, I think. Yes. Do you live every day as if you were a member of God's family, accepted and loved? Remember, a child in a family obeys, not in order to be loved and accepted, but because he or she is already loved and accepted. This is the flow and shape of the gospel. That we obey, not so that God will save us in the future, but we obey because we've already been loved and accepted by faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is the final result of men and women who have persevered to the end. Christ-centered perseverance, living in obedience because we've already been loved and accepted through Christ. 
and the family of God will reign forever with members from every tongue and every nation, a diverse spiritual family that does not spotlight one race, not one kind of person, but every kind of person bound together for all of eternity. Christ-centered perseverance. It leads us to the end of the book. The book of Revelation, where we're going to conclude with this this morning, again on the screen. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray for anybody who is in here who's hungry for your word, who's hungry to know what's it look like to persevere. In a life of difficulty and trial that seems to be hiding around every corner, where we have bad days and bad weeks and bad years, Lord, what's it look like to persevere? Father, give us the grace to see it in your word this morning. That is by grace we have been saved and it is by grace that you will sustain us to the end. Father, keep our eyes fixed on you. Fixed, let us fix our eyes on the cross where death died and where new life was offered in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.